The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, the markets have had a case of trade whiplash from a lot of mixed signals, some of them on Twitter. It started Sunday evening when President Trump took to his favorite platform to threaten an additional 25% tariff by Friday on China unless the U.S. and Beijing could reach the long-awaited trade deal. By Wednesday, the president said China wanted to make a deal, while Chinese officials warned they would retaliate if the midnight tariffs went through. So to parse through the headlines, we caught up with Stefan Selig, who served as Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade under President Obama. We started by asking him if there would be a real economic impact from the additional 25% tariffs. You know, look, I think um, after people got over the excitement, because don't forget we were positioned after the last visit that Secretary Mnuchin had in China, where he said we're in the final lapse of uh, getting to a trade deal. So I think the market was expecting uh, something to be announced in the, in the very near term. And so the president's tweet uh, set people a Twitter, uh, pun, pun intended. Um, but I think the market has rightly uh, concluded that actually it is much more likely that we're going to get to a deal and get to a deal in the near future. And this was more just um, a Trumpian uh, expression uh, in the way he communicates. And perhaps maybe he also thought it could be incrementally helpful as an negotiating tactic as opposed to something fundamentally amiss in terms of getting to a deal. So it's still kind of ambiguous how the Chinese side is going to respond. There was initial reports that said, oh, they're not going to show up in D.C. this week. Then some indications that maybe they will or that that was never they were never actually going to cancel. But in your view, how is something like this to play? And do you think there's a good chance they'll kind of come to the same conclusion that you did? Which is like, you know what, is it is a tweet? Whatever, let's Look, just continue on the path. They're mature, seasoned, professional negotiators. And so I'm not surprised at all that they didn't cancel in some fit of peak. Uh, Liu He, who's uh, President Xi's, in many respects, closest advisor, is leading the charge for the Chinese. So I fully expected them to make the trip. And I think this is just kind of part and parcel to potentially getting to a deal. Yeah. And I think the deal that we're going to see has to be one where both sides can claim victory. And so um, I think that's where we're going, does this sort of posturing help or hinder? Do you think that this art of the deal that we're seeing potentially being taken by Trump does manage to walk the Chinese back a little bit to some of the commitments they previously had? 
you know, who knows, Carolyn, um, what, how effective ultimately this will be. And you never know, actually, in the context of any negotiation, what one particular Contact. tactic mm. ultimately might have led to more or less um, success. I do think they're taking it, the Chinese, that is, they're taking all this stuff with a grain of salt at this point, And they understand now who they're negotiating with. And they're trying to get to a deal that they can, as I said earlier, uh, claim victory a, a, around. And I think the president and the administration are doing the same. I think um, we will have to see what that deal actually um, uh, encapsulates. Is it going to be just purchasing more U.S. goods, soybeans, sorghum, LNG, uh, some additional market access for financial institutions and other industries, or is it fundamentally going to get to some of the big pillars that the administration is rightly and the business community is rightly focused on, cyber theft, counterfeiting, and state support of uh, Chinese businesses? So, but our reporting seemed to suggest that one of the reasons uh, why the Trump administration did what it did was because China seemed to back away from this idea of changing their laws. If they don't change their laws, do those fundamental things that you just laid out, are those even possible? Well, Roy, those are one of the things. The yeah. other is specifically what happens to the tariffs if we do reach a deal or not. Are they immediately uh, withdrawn or not? And how are they potentially uh, snapped back in the event that the Chinese don't do all the things that they are would ultimately agree to in the context of a negotiation? And at least some of that reporting also suggests there are some industries where there is still some open items, whether that's cloud computing, mm -hmm. ag access, um, et cetera. So I think it's unclear exactly what is going on. On, um, uh, in the negotiations, other than to say, um, I think I, I do believe we're getting close to um, uh, the end game here. Do you think the administration wants a deal for a deal's sake? Because sometimes people think that, but it seems like the record is mixed. So, like on NAFTA, I don't think the new deal is that much different than the old one. But on the other hand, whether it's debating health care or taxes with the Democrats or North Korea, Trump has shown a willingness not to just take a deal for the appearance of a deal. You know, How much does he really want to get something substantive? You know, I, I would answer that, Joe. I'd say for sure he wants to, for political reasons um, and actually economic reasons, get to a deal. That being said, no deal was ever going to be a panacea to address right. all of the issues that we have um, in terms of our economic and commercial relationship with China. And that's fundamentally because they are not a market economy. And having an economy of their, that size, an economy of our size, to effectively interact with each other um, is going to be a long haul, and we should expect, frankly, a lot of this to continue over the foreseeable future. Then we turn to the other big trade front on President Trump's agenda, the trade deal formerly known as NAFTA, the USMCA. With the new trade deal stuck in congressional limbo, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney floated the idea of old NAFTA remaining the law of the land, if Democrats did not vote to ratify the renegotiated trade agreement. So he spoke with Arturo Herrera, Mexico's deputy finance minister, and asked him if Mexico would be satisfied sticking with the status quo. Yeah, I mean, we have been living with a status quo for a, for a long time, since 1994. Of course, we, as, a, as, a, as well as the Canadians and the, and the U.S., consider that a new uh, trade agreement will be uh, an improvement on the current one. Uh, we are currently quite positive about the possibility that this could be ratified relatively uh, soon. We are only concerned that if this uh, decision takes some time, it's going to start overlapping with the political cycle, with the electoral cycle in the U.S., and that may become more complex. So as 
long as we move relatively fast, I think we are going to be okay. Minister, it's interesting that some analysts like Goldman Sachs today saying when you've got such a combative approach being taken by Trump on Twitter when it comes to China, this could have ramifications, have an impact on USMCA, for example, and a willingness for Trump to just walk away from that and indeed from NAFTA. Is this something that worries you? Do you worry about the, the tweeting habits of the president of the U.S.? No, I don't have a Twitter account myself. So, but but let me tell you, no, I, I think uh, what we have is a very complex uh, international environment. Just by listening to you before this interview, you were talking about Turkey, you were talking about uh, Argentina, if we add Brexit plus Venezuela, plus uh, U.S.-Chinese uh, uh, conversations, plus NAFTA. I mean, we have a cocktail which, uh, which is uh, very difficult to disentangle, but we just need to understand that this is the, the world in which we are living, and we need to be very disciplined in terms of keep moving forward towards trying to, to, to aim for the ratification of the new trade agreement. Speaking of moving forward, Mexico's president has promised to double the pace of GDP, um, but that hasn't really worked out just yet. First quarter GDP numbers showed a contraction of two-tenths of one percent from the fourth quarter last year. What is the single biggest challenge, the single biggest obstacle to fulfilling the president's promise? I think there are three issues that we need to tackle in the medium to long term in, in terms of being able to, Mexico, to move Mexico to a different path. And, and, and I want to be very clear with this because the, the problems with the growth in Mexico are not new. It has been at least three decades. Uh, the GDP per capita since the 1990s the, since the, since the to now has been growing just at barely 1%. If we go back to all the way to the 80s, it's even smaller than 1%. This is the lowest rate in Latin America, probably with the exception of Venezuela, which may not be come as a surprise uh, right now. So when I seek to the different things that need to, to change structurally, I, 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 will, I will point three things. One is the informal sector, but there we don't have uh, conditions that are relatively different than the rest of our peers in Latin America. Second one, and this is very important, we have a relatively shallow financial sector. Uh, just to give you an example, in Mexico only 27% of the adults have a savings account. Only 145 uh, companies are listed in the, uh, in the stock market. So we need a financial se sector that is much more uh, dynamic than we have seen. And the last one is we need to have higher investment rates, both in the private sector and in the public sector. Uh, we closed 2018 with a, uh, invest, a public in investment uh, ratio of only 2.8% of GDP. This is the lowest one in Latin America. This clearly needs to change if we want to put the country in a different path. You mentioned investment rates there, and it's interesting, there's been multiple surveys, one by a particular bank, showing that economists only 5% now think it's a good time for companies to invest in Mexico. There seems to have been a lot of trust loss, particularly with the backing away of the investment in Mexico City Airport. Do you think this is what has caused the concern and the lack of investment in Mexico? No, this is, this is some, obviously something that we are observing and following uh, on a permanent basis. We need to, we understand that when a new administration is selected, it's sometimes difficult for the market to distill 
what is uh, policy intentions and what is uh, politics. And it is, I think it's on our side to make sure that we have a much more cohesive narrative so that we are able to send a clearer message to the private sector. Let me tell you why the private sector is so important for us. Overall investment in Mexico is 23% of GDP. If, if, uh, as I mentioned it before, we invest less than 3% of GDP, this means that the private sector is investing 6.7 times what the public invest, in, uh, what the government is doing. So in order for us to grow faster in this year and, and, and in the years to come, we need a, a private sector that is confident and that is facing clear rules of the game. And we are gonna be working towards that. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Then we went through Friday's jobs report with Martha Gimbel, the research director for the Indeed Hiring Lab, who has also served as the research director and senior economist for the Joint Economic Committee on Capitol Hill. The unemployment rate hit a 49-year low, but a weak spot in the report was wages not accelerating further. So we asked Martha why the strong job market hasn't translated into more robust wage growth. There's still pockets of weakness in the labor market. You still see the employment rate for workers in their prime working years less below where it was in, for instance, the early 2000s. The rate of workers who are working part-time but would prefer full-time work is still elevated. And so employers have other people that they can turn to to hire before they have to start bidding up wages to fill those jobs. There's a lot of people who look at the um, employment situation, they look at the inflation rate, and they come to this conclusion that essentially we aren't at full employment, despite how low uh, the unemployment rate has gotten. Do you have any idea of where full employment is? I think the lesson from the last few years is that full employment is always a little bit further out than people were expecting it <laughs> to be. It's a Zeno's paradox. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You just get a little bit, but you never get there. But that's exactly right. And you know, we shouldn't be counting out the U.S. economy before it really achieves its full potential. And I don't think it's anywhere near that yet. Mm. Okay, anywhere near. So how much longer could we have this joyous, continued momentum in terms of job hiring, but no pressure on the wages? I mean, there is some movement upwards in wages, but it's really concentrated in low-wage industries mm. right now. And that speaks to the fact that in a tight labor market, people don't want to do those kinds of jobs. And so those employers are having to compete. Middle and high wage industries haven't had to start raising wages to the same extent yet. And so in order to see more acceleration, we're probably going to see, need to see more wage growth in those industries. So you say the economy is still not at maximum potential and it may have a long way to go till getting there. But obviously, we've been talking for years, maybe five years to economists who said, oh, this is, this is full employment and inflation is about to pick up. The next time, I don't know when it's going to be, we have a recession and an eventual recovery. What can the profession do better to not prematurely say we've maxed out? Because there could be consequences to those errors, especially if it meant um, tighter than necessary monetary and fiscal policy. I think it's really important that people focus not just on that headline unemployment number, but also think about other measures of labor market slack like prime age employment rate, like the part-time for economic reasons rate as well. 
when you look at the demographics and the demographic changes that we're going through in this nation, how do you assess uh, the employment situation? I mean, are we are we sort of employing the people in the meat of that, you know, their prime earning years, or is this more sort of on the flanks? No, I mean, you're still seeing the prime age employment population ratio picking up year over year, mm -hmm. which speaks again to the number of people, even in their prime working years, who couldn't find a job, who dropped out of the labor force, mm -hmm because the economic conditions just weren't there for them, and now they're seeing those opportunities. Our previous guest, Ed Campbell from QMA, was kept on reiterating how pleased he was with the productivity numbers as well. Are you starting to see that move in the right direction? Mm. Have you got the explanation that it's technology that's been at the, the root cause of this, or what are you seeing in terms of productivity? I think the productivity numbers are exciting, but they're also volatile, so I'd like to see where they go over a longer period of time. That being said, in a tight labor market, if employers are having to make productivity enhancing investments because Will finding, they? Are we seeing that? We're starting to see software spending. But. I mean, I think it's still sort of up in the air, and it's an important thing to be watching over the next few months. Uh, one other you know, weak spot, and it's not huge in terms of total numbers, but manufacturing payrolls at 4,000 came in below expectations. Last month, we actually had a bit of a uh, contraction, although that got revised higher. What's going on there? It does appear that the data says the manufacturing sector of the economy is, appears to be decelerating. I mean, the goods sector in general is growing more slowly than it was at the end of last year. Right. That is a sector that really drove the blockbuster jobs growth. Is the dollar, the strong dollar, a contributor to that? I mean, part of it is just that they're facing a lot of headwinds. For instance, the trade war, the manufacturing sector's been right. holding up under it for a while, but there's only so long that they can put off, for instance, having to cut jobs. Do you think that the Fed and the way that its, its approach is sort of assessing the economy, particularly with regards to that relationship between unemployment and inflation, do you think that uh, is still sort of a viable way to look at things? I think it's important that we be looking both at the employment side and the inflation side. And neither one of them is sending the message that you need to put the foot on the brakes anytime soon. She's best known for her role as Hilary Banks in the 90s sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now, two decades later, actor Karen Parsons is leading a movement to bring stories of African-American heroes to life. She recently published the young adult novel How High the Moon. Scarlett sat down with Karen and asked her what drove her to start her company, Sweet Blackberry. African-American achievements, uh, things we don't hear about so much. And we hear about, you know, a handful of incredible stories of black history, um, usually in February. <laughs> but, but there are so many stories. And my, um, I, my mother was a librarian and headed the Black Resource Center where mm -hmm. she worked. And she would come across amazing stories all the time. And so she started bringing stories to my attention that I hadn't heard of and that my friends hadn't heard of. And I thought, this is just crazy. These, these stories should be out there for children. So you had access to a lot of these stories that were inaccessible to a lot of other people. And you just released a new book, How High the Moon. Yeah. Explain the impetus for this particular book. Uh, for this particular book. Who is it aimed at? Well, it's aimed at middle grade. It's a middle grade book. Mm -hmm. um, so it's another young person project, much like the Sweet Blackberry stories as well. Um, but for all kids. And it follows a little girl, 11-year-old uh, girl, in the Jim Crow South in the 1940s in South Carolina. And my mother grew up in South Carolina at that time. And she always talked about what a happy childhood she had. And uh, or whenever she talks about her childhood, she refers to it as such a happy time. And I wanted to go kind of step into her shoes uh, a little bit of combination of my upbringing mm -hmm. as an 11-year-old girl and hers in that setting 
and see what life may have been like and what, how it could be so happy when you're in the segregated South and the dangers around you and, and all of the, the intense racism that you suffer as just a regular. Um, I wanted to see how she, how she found a happy life. Mm -hmm. How she navigated that. How she did, yeah. So uh, let's put this in the context of what your uh, organization or your nonprofit does. Can I call it a company? Um, it's an organization, I guess, because we're a nonprofit. So okay. I say, you can call it a company, because it is a company. But I, uh, you know, formally, I guess they say organization. OK, let's talk about how this, um, how this fulfills a need that Sweet Blackberry is filling overall today. Talk about it in that context. Well, I, when I first started doing it, I really just wanted to bring these stories to kids. I mean, I was just thinking, oh, this, my mother told me the story of Henry Box Brown, who was an enslaved man who literally mailed himself to freedom in a box. He had a, a box built, he had postage attached, he climbed inside, had postage attached, had it nailed shut and sent from Virginia, where he was enslaved, to uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So it would be across state lines when they opened it. He survived the journey and he was a free man. And so for me, that was just, it was a, an incredible story and nobody knew about it. And so I thought it was really, um, I, I thought it was just so important to get stories like his out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm probably not answering your question. No, 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 no that's fine. Um, I, I guess another way of putting it is, how do you decide what stories to tell? Because there's, there are stories of prominent yeah. African-Americans who have achieved a lot. And you mentioned that we hear about it a lot in February, yeah. but not other times. How do you decide what stories are worth telling? Well. That story, the story of Henry Box Brown, for instance, I had never heard it, and my friends hadn't heard it, and it was such an amazing story. Um, the stories of Garrett Morgan, the inventor. Mm -hmm. There's some stuff out there about Garrett, but most people don't know who Garrett Morgan is or the contributions that he made. Um, and I think that's really important for children to know about. I think it's important for all children to know about, but especially for black children to know about. But if you see these accomplishments and you can recognize what you are capable of and you feel empowered, mm -hmm. I think that's very important. But it's important for all children. Also, I think seeing these stories from a, an early age and these stories of triumph, um, I think it, it gives them, it, it's inspiring. But it also ch can change the landscape of race for them coming up when they see their value and their neighbor's value differently than sometimes the messages that we get from the media. Mm -hmm. um, there are other stories too that, that, um, that we've told like Bessie Coleman, the first black female aviator. There's more information out there about Bessie, but I chose to fi finally tell her story because so many people didn't know about her and she was so groundbreaking and so inspiring. and. Um, at a time for, for women and for blacks mm -hmm. um, that she insisted on. She had went to France to learn how to fly because no one in America would. And it wasn't the small world that it is today. It wasn't so easy to just hop on a plane and right. go over there. That was a huge move. It was a huge move. She didn't know. She was a black woman in America. She didn't know the language there, the culture, anything. She had to take a boat and get there. So this is great because you have all these details. What's been the biggest challenge in researching some of these stories? Because as you said, it, some of them are not very well known. Right. How do you go about filling in some of the blanks? Well, it's getting easier and easier because the internet is becoming more and more, you know, chock full of information and it's just a matter of But some of, of it wrong. I was just going to say, it's just a matter of discerning, you know, taking a look and going, okay, what's accurate and what's not. And that's all with that. But there's, there's more information about some people than others, mm -hmm. um, you know, with, 
with Henry Box Brown. I mean, I read the narrative of Henry Box Brown, so I, was, I read his story and got it straight from him pretty much. Um, Janet Collins, the first black prima ballerina, I didn't hear about Janet until I read her obituary. So, and there was very, very little about her. However, Yael Lewin wrote a beautiful, wonderful book about her and had researched extensively. So that was something that I was able to call upon um, as well as other, other things, but that was really wonderful. Um, so it's, it's stories that I think are inspiring and empowering that we, that we really don't hear about and I think that children should know about and can make a difference in their lives to, to know about. And you tell these stories in a traditional book format and also through different forms of media, um, animated shorts, for instance. Right. The, the Sweet Blackberry stories are through animated shorts, and we will be doing books of them. How High the Moon, which is for a slightly older audience, is actually, it's not... The, the there is a story from history, it's historical fiction, and there is a, a story from history specifically in the book, but it's not, the, it's not like a Sweet Blackberry empowering story. It's mm -hmm. actually, in the book, one of the protagonists, Ella, one of her good friends, his name is George Stinney Jr., and that's based on a real person who was the youngest person ever executed in the United States. At 14 years old, he was wrongly convicted of murdering two little white girls, mm -hmm. and he was executed. Um, many years later, the, he was exonerated. The case was thrown out as a sham. But when I was researching for Sweet Blackberry stories, George's face would come up all the time. His mugshot, this 14-year-old boy, you know, drained of hope. Mm -hmm. um, and it haunted me, and I, and I would talk to people about it, just like the Sweet Blackberry stories, and people didn't know who he was. And that was crazy to me, that this, this horrible tragedy happened, and then it just kind of disappeared. So I knew I wanted to tell his story at some point, and then to find that he actually lived in relative uh, close proximity to where my mother grew mm. up around the same time made this the right story for that. Now, of course, you are an actor. You're best known as uh, Hilary Banks on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah. You transitioned to the nonprofit world. Talk a little bit about how difficult that transition was and how you still can use some of your connections to the industry yeah. in building out Sweet Blackberry. Well, I've been really fortunate because, of course, I've met, I've met so many people while working uh, as an actress. And um, people also have taken me into their homes. And so there's a familiarity with just me as well. I've been able to call upon people to help me out. When I started, when I started Sweet Blackberry, for instance, uh, I was writing the journey of Henry Box Brown. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, Alfre Woodard's voice came into my head. I mean, really powerfully, powerfully and wouldn't go away. I had worked with Alfre before I knew her and, um, and I admire her so much. And I thought, oh, I have to, I have to reach out to Alfre because I can't get her out of my head, you know? And she's right, she's the one. And, um, and I know her politics and I know who she is as a woman and so I thought she would respond. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very fortunate she came on board. And once Alfre had done one of the films, I think that that really helped and then setting things in motion to reach out to Queen Latifah and then Chris Rock and Lawrence Fishburne because, you know, when you, you started with such an amazing person. Um, but I was really lucky. You know, I worked with Queen Latifah before. Chris Rock was actually on Fresh Prince before. Mm -hmm. I've known Lawrence Fishburne for a long time. So these are people that I was able to, to reach out to. And other, other uh, high-profile celebrity people have been very helpful along the way as well. So that's been huge. 
Why go with a nonprofit format as opposed to a for-profit company? Is, is there a plan maybe down the road to turn this into a for-profit enterprise? You know, it could it could possibly we'll see how that goes. You know, I started this I started Sweet Blackberry without thinking at all about you just dove headed. I did. And I and I guess it's good I did because if I had thought too much about it, I it probably would have been too daunting and I would have just <laughs> backed off and said I can't handle that. But I was so anxious to really to get the stories out to kids. And the more stories I came upon, I thought, oh, this is really important. This is this is really needs to happen. I just started moving. Mm -hmm. Good on one hand, horrible on another. Like I said, I hadn't thought of a business model. And so I lived with it for a short while as a for-profit, not thinking of anything except getting the stories out. Mm -hmm. And after living with it for a little for a few years, I realized that. I thought that the nonprofit model was probably better for this for this organization for Sweet Blackberry. Mm -hmm. um, there were so many people with such goodwill who wanted to support this and help this along. And the vision at the time that I started Sweet Blackberry was very small. It's grown. <laughs> I've lived with it. I have kids. I, I understand so much more about it. So it's grown. And what I would like to do is much larger now. Mm -hmm. But when I started it, it was very small. It was just getting, getting these stories out, and that wasn't really uh, there wasn't a big return on an investment, you know, from that with that. So. Um, that's why when you say maybe later it'll become something else, maybe, maybe. But right now, um, I think that we've got so much support from people that hopefully that can help with the nonprofit. But nonprofit's a lot of work. It certainly is. What about the distribution part of it? I mean, you have a book here, you yeah. have these animated shorts. How do you work with traditional outlets to make sure that your content gets as much play as it should? Well, the Sweet Blackberry films right now, um, most of them are on Netflix right now. So we've been and we've been on HBO. Um, so we we reach out that way to, to different people. We're um, we're uh, on Afro Life and on Canopy. There are a few platforms. Um, but oh, the book though, however, is Little Brown Hachette. This is Little Brown uh, Young Readers. So that's uh, separate from the Sweet Blackberry. But, um, but yeah, it's a little bit. It's it's. It's a dance, <laughs> learning all the time. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.